Welcome to the Studio Interviews. I'm your host, Diana Brown. And with us on mic and engineering this episode is Dan Wilson. Say hi, Dan. Hello. <laughs> All right. Today, our guest is an interesting mashup of actor, director, author, psychologist, career coach, talk show host, and musician. Now, the San Francisco Bay Guardian has called him the Bay Area's best career coach. The critics are calling his first effort at directing for the stage creative and excellent. He's also the host of his own talk show on NPR San Francisco. He's written for the San Francisco Chronicle. The LA Times frequently appears on CNN, and his mother claims he could read the New York Times at age three. Welcome, Marty Nemco. My pleasure to be with you. We are delighted to have you here. Now, this has been a crazy week for you, I understand. He just rushed across town, listeners, from uh, flogging your book, I think was the word you used. <laughs> Tell us about your book briefly. Books, Cool Careers for Dummies, 500 Cool Careers. Most people, when they're trying to change careers, want new options, and Cool Careers for Dummies gives them 500 new options, little one-paragraph cutesy introductions to great careers. Awesome. Now, okay, I guess, and I see the look on Dan Wilson's face. So is there an exponential increase of, like, the cooler the career, the dumber you are? Or <laughs> The word dummies, you know, it's a, it's a brand that basically says, let's get this information out quick. It's not it's for dummies. True. It's just for people who want the information fast and not a lot of academic treatises. <laughs> All right, now, you have just opened your new play, your directorial debut, and I definitely want to get into that. But I do want to ask you, what is the number one coolest career for dummies in your book? I would say the reality is that it would be a biotech researcher. I really think that we have only begun to see the potential of the biotech revolution. You know, I see people dying of cancer or heart disease or whatever. There's like nothing worse. And I really believe that we're still in the test tubes, but I think within our lifetimes, we will be curing those diseases. And in fact, this is controversial. But I think we'll be using genetic approaches to deal with things like depression, um, low intelligence, things like that. As long as that kind of gene therapy is done ethically, I think it will do more to improve society than anything else. So the coolest career ultimately is the one that makes the biggest difference in the world. And I think a biotech researcher is probably that career. Right on. So if you were starting over, would that be your chosen career? Without question. Awesome. So now... You are a first-time director with a PhD in psychology, a background in career counseling. So what other world skills did you bring to directing? I am a very perfectionistic person. I tried, I delude myself in everything I do that I'm going to be world-class. It's going to be the finest thing that has ever been created on planet Earth. And once I take that mindset, and as long as I, I don't want to burn out my actors and crew, because sure. otherwise they'll just get, you know, they'll get annoyed at me but, um, <laughs> or, or walk off, heaven forbid, like I've seen when I've been an actor in some place. But I try to establish this notion that we are going to blow, can I curse in this You thing? can curse your head off. We're going to blow their fucking socks off, you know. It's like that mindset. So that's the deal. And that, I think that's what I bring to the table more than anything. I mean, I'm a smart guy, but I'm also driven to be, like, unbelievably the best. Now, there's an old uh, axiom about uh, the proper percentage of, of how, what makes a perfect production. 50% uh, casting, 20% yeah, you yeah. Know, brains. What is your it's, magic? It's 40% script. It's 35% uh, casting crew. And 25% a driven, inspirational, brilliant director. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where you come in. I try. That's my aspiration, at least, seriously. Yeah. Now, I understand that you uh, you certainly did not approach directing lightly. You actually sought help from some of the professional companies in the San Francisco Bay Area. Who did you go to? to, to well, my way of learning, I think, I think school's a ripoff. I think school in general is a waste of time, way overrated, not worth the money. MFAs, 
you know, bachelor's in theater, bachelor's in filmmaking, bachelor's in direct, any of that crap. Uh, <laughs> it is totally inefficient. It is more to serve the school in making money or the professors in their little stupid research agendas. What really, I think, the smartest way to learn anything is to forego state you, let alone private you, in favor of what I call you you. Where, which is what I did in trying to become a director. I identified the very best books that have ever been written on directing, and I did that largely, frankly, by just using Amazon and reading all the reader reviews and the expert reviews and finding those books that seemed to be the best and most resonant. And because on Amazon, I'm a cheapskate. I've got money, and yet I'm still a cheapskate. <laughs> and on Amazon, you can buy all these great books used for like a fraction of the cost. So I got like the 12 best books on directing for a total of under 100 bucks. You know, and I just read them made notes, made did the equivalent of writing a term paper on directing from reading it. So I took out, like, my term paper was called The Best Nuggets in Being an Amazing Director. And I would write down all that stuff. So all the wisdom of these great, great directing book writers and great directors were distilled into 10 pages. I knew I ended up learning that, like, as well as I could. But that, of course, is still abstract knowledge. Sure. So then the first thing I said, okay, I got to get myself somebody to be foolish enough to let me direct the play. <laughs> So I got this, uh, you know, theater company, Chanticleers in Castro Valley, uh, which is, you know, not exactly a prestigious community theater, to uh, to let me do it. I'd acted in a couple of plays for them before, and they liked me. Um, and so they let me do, and they let me do whatever I wanted. And so that once I got to do same time next year, because it's a real mainstream play, it's something perfect for the Castro Valley audience. I then had an immediate opportunity to apply everything I learned from these twelve books. So I start working on that. But then, because I realized I still don't know it all, I then went and I got the best talent I could, directing talent, to coach me to both watch me in the casting process, to plan the casting process in rehearsals. So I got Greg Hubbard, who is the ACT's casting associate. I got John McMullen, who's a pain in the butt, but he's a really good actor, <laughs> a really good director. John, to, we'll have to have you on unless yeah. you refuse that. <laughs> <laughs> he knows he is. <laughs> oh, nothing like self-knowledge. Go yeah. on. So basically that's what I did. And then, and just, you know, importantly... While I was open to everything they said, I did not slavishly follow what they said. It's not like I had enough self-esteem to say, you know what, I will take seriously what they say, but I'm not going to necessarily implement it. And so I accepted some of the stuff they said and rejected some of the other stuff. Take what you can and leave the rest. Now, Dan Wilson, who, as we all know, makes the show sound beautiful, but he's also an actor, writer, and director. Dan, do you want to weigh in on that uh, percentage of what the perfect formula of casting a show is? Are you pimping me out, Diana? I am so pimping you oh hard, honey. Um, I, I would say that's probably a pretty good assessment, although I would say it's more about 40, 40, 20. And it's more a matter of the director making sure he doesn't destroy the qualities of those first 80% of the good cast <laughs> and good, good, good scripts. Um, although we've certainly seen certain directors who are very visionary, who create very unique creations, but they're also usually also writers. So. As are you. Now, Marty, you chose same time next year for your first directing effort. Would you like to share with us why? Sure, a number of reasons. Number one, um, I thought... I didn't want to be an organizer of a cast of thousands. You know, so Traffic I copying some directors. Yeah, say. exactly, right. So I, I figured I wanted a two-hander, nice. <clears throat> which is real easy. And I'm good at intimacy. I'm lousy at large crowds. So a two-hander is good. I also want something I, I really find um, kind of egotistical and elitist, all the uh, play directors and playwrights who write arcane stuff that nobody can understand, really writing for themselves in their few little... Uh, you know, peers of super intellectuals. So I picked something. <laughs> so I you want to drop some names? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, even Albie at times. I mean, I, okay. I got to tell you. But um, 
I picked something that I thought that everybody in the, in the Castro Valley mainstream audience could understand and laugh and cry. Because it's not coincidence that the theatrical symbol is the mask of laughing and crying. It is all about emotion. It is all about connection. And because this particular venue is 99-seat house, I wanted something that was extremely intimate. And same time next year is all about voyeurism into the bedroom of a, in a little cottage. So that's why I picked it. Awesome. So now, what did you do to foster that uh, intimacy between your characters? I actually took my cast to the original bed and breakfast where they filmed the movie same time next year so they could bond. You are kidding. And I actually encouraged them to stay in the same bed together all night, but they didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> are these uh, lovely actors married? These are married. That married. might have something to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if they were married and unhappily married, it might have been just fine. <laughs> but no, one of them is extremely happily married, so she uh, absolutely put the kibosh on that. I like how he said one of them. <laughs> the other one, I don't know. I really, I mean, honestly, I really don't know. I mean, the other guy could be happily married, but he doesn't show it. The other one is like, they've been together like 30 years, and it's like they're still goo goo gaga about each other. Now, this play actually takes place over 30 years. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, I'm, I'm very familiar with the film, and I, I have uh, watched, I believe, one other production of it. And usually they tend to skew toward having younger people play the roles and then age them on. Yeah. You kind of went the other direction. Exactly. You know, I do believe in the old actor's rule, the director's rule, you cast the best actors. Two best actors I had were older. And I said, I'm going to work with that. And so what I did is I actually aged the script. I didn't change the script because I didn't want to violate the stupid royalty copyright laws. <laughs> um, but I uh, did make little tiny tweaks so that I could start them at age 40 and they actually end at 75. So that they make a 35-year transformation, but it enabled my actors to make it work. And actually, given the aged audience that is community theaters... They were youngsters. W- yeah, and, and, and the audience related much better. You know, the notion that at age 60 you can now have sex, or at age 70 still have sex, was very exciting to those old people in the audience. So right on, the future's really well. looking bright. <laughs> 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 now... Marty, um, you added a multimedia element to this show. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The, you know, they were very practical in the way they wrote the play script, which was they sh- this is a story of a couple that met. There were two people separate, and they met at a restaurant in a bed and breakfast and, uh, and then ended up in bed and having this amazing weekend together and deciding to spend a weekend every year together. But it doesn't show how they met. And somehow it's jarring to me to have start the play with them just in bed having had sex. It's something, it's, you know, there's something about the seduction that's pretty cool. Absolutely. So I, actually, as I told you, I took them up to Mendocino and we made a film. We okay. made a film of how they met. We had them walking separately into this bed and breakfast, separately into the restaurant, sitting at opposite sides of the room. And then the, the difficult part, but which I think we captured, was the ability of showing how the magic slowly built and the seduction. And it's like, although they were both married and they both really didn't want to do it, but they couldn't resist each other and showing that irresistible magnetic attraction. Uh, I think we captured that in four minutes and 45 seconds, and that's how the play starts. I understand you actually make a cameo appearance in that. Uh, I did. I, you know, I did an Alfred Hitchcock, so I played the desk clerk. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Dan, uh, you also made a little cameo in one of your recent productions. I've done of, a few of those, actually, yeah. It seems to be a trend of directors I know, at least in San Francisco Bay Area. Glenn Havlin does that a lot in his company. But you did it uh, in Vagina Dentata, a play you wrote, and mm-hmm. you played... Um, I played the invisible, was supposed to be the invisible bartender. Because um, I had written a role just to get, and then I realized I had to have someone bring drinks on and off stage, and didn't want to cast someone to walk on and off stage every now and then. That was good of you. Yeah. No spear carriers. Yeah, but it's amazing what you, what you can do with simply a look and a smile, and all of a sudden you've stolen the scene. So it's always <laughs> you're very hairy. I'm surprised you didn't play the vagina. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> 
unfortunately, we have no Federation uh, restrictions here, so we're open <laughs> That's to why I that. asked the question. <laughs> well, we did throw out the title of the play, so I think you picked that up and ran with it. Boom, boom. And you were the only uh, man in the show. Only man in the show in a subservient role. A lot of, of critics what pick else? up on that. Are there any other plays written these days that don't have the man in the subservient role? Give me a break. <laughs> oh, oh, well, I'm going to definitely come back to that one. That's We want to spend some more time talking about that. That's very leading. Uh, okay, here's another little question for you. Now, we have been talking in the last few months with several different artists. We're going to jump off of your specific show for just a moment. As long as you like. (laughs) He's so accommodating. We've been bouncing around the question, is live theater dying? Is it a dying art form? Oh, it's a great question. Do you want to weigh in on that? The answer is I fear yes. And I'm so sad about it because I love the magic of live theater. But I look at who's coming, and it's old people who are nostalgic for the old days of live theater. And I think young people, you know, the reality is that the miracles that can be done with technology, uh, you know, whether it be video games or movies or YouTube or whatever, are so cool and increasingly going to be ever more immersive and interactive that somehow live theater will be seen as anachronistic, I fear. Interesting. I read an article a few years ago, and uh, I'll quote from it. It was uh, in Arts Live, and this individual was stating that they felt young audiences find theater uh, too close, too real and unmediated. It's almost creepy for them. They're not used to the immediacy of live theater. Do you think that plays into it? Yeah, I think a little bit. I think that's a little over-intellectual. I think they love intimacy. And, you know, the fact is you can get a credit, even if you're in, you know, what is that called, second world. You know, if you're totally involved in that online space, I mean, you are totally, you know, it's it almost a, a, phil- a philosophical question, but are you really more intimately involved when you're passively sitting in, in row one in a little <laughs> theater at 965 Mission Street, or are you more passively involved in an immersive environment in Second World, even though you're only, you know, interacting online, I would say you're probably more involved in uh, online. So I think that's wrong. Now, Dan, you play a lot of online multiplayer games, correct? I've done a few. Mr. Warcraft. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just ask the question. What's your favorite online multiplayer game? Um... I, I do more stuff with people that I'm actually with, like playing Halo, more than actually right playing purely online. Which so you gather and then play this. I tend to prefer to actually it. gather with with friends and then shoot each other repeatedly in the face. Um, good times. Good times. Well, for, 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 for guys, whiskey and pizza—it's the best combination. <laughs> <laughs> Marty, are you a are you a aficionado no. of the games? No. One of the key things people do ask how much how I get so much done. Um, it really is I avoid every time suck. Anything that is like, you know, TV, golf, video games, going to my cousin's wedding in Topeka, any of that <laughs> crap, the answer is always no. Really? Oh, 100%. You know, even frankly, hanging out with friends. I talk with friends, on, I'm in my car on the way to rehearsal. You know, that's about it. I really love, I am, for me, philosophically, the meaning of life is productivity. And whether I'm directing a play or writing an article or seeing a client or whatever, it's always, always going to take precedence over, you know, playing basketball. I'm going to quote Rent, the opposite of war isn't peace, it's creation. So, yeah, you are a very prolific individual. Your website is, you have articles on there on almost every imaginable topic. 500 articles all previously published. It's it's amazing. And you also, uh, in case that wasn't enough reading for us, you also list your favorite website, which is uh, refdesk.com. It was. That's old. I haven't updated. That's probably about three or four years ago. Okay, so what is your new current? I got to tell you, it's got to be Google. I mean, how can you live without Google? We Google. I couldn't survive without. To Google is verb. To Google Google is to live. (laughs) To Google is to live. And it helped me find out a lot about you beforehand. Oh, I bet. (laughs) Now, here's a question. Back to the... uh, is live theater dead? Uh, let's say that we've got 
Well, how many years do you give us? What's the prognosis? Well, it's going to be. It's going to last forever. It's just that the audiences are going to dwindle. It's going to be. You know, right now you're on Gold Star giving two for ones and sometimes <laughs> free tickets. You know, to to get people in. Well, you know, I think it's going to be a lot more Gold Star and Silver Star and Bronze Star, and it's going to be everything else. You know, full price tickets. <laughs> Nobody's going to pay. Wow. Now we talked a little bit about uh, the the world of online. Do you think uh, online distribution of television style programs? Yes, that's the new frontier. I think so. And you know, watching them on your cell, you know, yeah. watching them on your iPhone, you know. cell phone content. Yeah, everything. Like the early you know. days of the internet. I keep hearing that bandied about. All over the place. When you're out, and you're out, it's going to be on your iPod. When you're sitting in that stupid traffic, you know, you're going to be watching, peering one eye on the traffic, one eye in the, you know, on your on your video phone or whatever. And when you're home, you're going to have this huge, you know, 180-inch screen immersive full-wall TV, and you're going to play your games or watch your videos. Or watch, you know, you may indeed do, if you're going to, you know, the, the savior really, ironically, for live theater, it's going to be on, they're going to be available. Instead of this, right now there's a stranglehold. You know, when there's a play, you can, no, no recording permitted and all that. You know what? In the end, that's going to have to give way because people ain't going to come to drive into the city, trying to find a parking spot. No way because the master plan in San Francisco is no parking at all and you're going to pay $9 zillion to park. So instead, what's going to happen is the, the play producers are going to have to be able to, li- have to license the content so people can watch them on their big screen TVs at home. Otherwise, there ain't going to be anybody there. Fascinating. Dan, you want to weigh in on that? Um, interesting with the whole master plan concept. I wasn't quite aware of that. <laughs> I have to wonder if it's going to swing one of two ways. I mean, like, you don't see any small opera, although I think there is a group called Pocket Opera. But generally, you don't see, like, opera on the small scale. It's only for the large, huge master thing. So are we going to end up having only ACT theaters, which is the largest theater in San Francisco, or is that going to end up losing its audience? And so you only have the scrappy folks who are passionate about it, who only expect an audience of 45 people. In my, this, is, this is one I'm least sure of. But I would bet in the right now the value proposition for ACT sucks. It's, you know, $75 a ticket. And you've got to park in the most expensive part of downtown. You know, it's costing you a, like a mortgage payment worth to go see a play. <laughs> if you're, you know, two or three people coming. I think that value proposition sucks. The play I'm doing right now, you know, at Chanticleers, because there is so many people who love to do theater, right. I have no trouble getting all-star actors to be in my play, and the tickets are 14 bucks full price, and believe me, there's lots of ways to get discounts. <laughs> no parking problems, no traffic problems, a 99-seat house that everybody gets a great seat. That value proposition is a hell of a lot better than the ACT proposition. So I would argue that ultimately in terms of the percentage, where, where the, the decrement's going to kind of happen, where the decline is going to be from the ACTs to these high-quality community theater productions. That's a gauntlet. You have thrown down the gauntlet. Now we can get Carrie in here and see what she thinks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I love this idea of seeing small theater thrive and uh, the great big theaters. I don't. I'm not saying I want to see them go away, but would love to level the playing field. I mean, Diana, I don't mean bit. to plug you, but I'm going to. Oh my I mean, goodness! I first met you when I saw you in Dead Certain. This is true. Now, this is a perfect example. I think you're a really outstanding actress. Yet you're working for, I'm sure, a fraction of the amount of money that they're paying at ACT. And the pleasure of watching you for seven bucks on Gold Star, going to see Dead Certain, and uh, in, a, in a 50 or 75 seat house, totally intimate, totally immersive, totally wonderful. How can ACT compete with that? And you guys were really great, especially you. Aww. Really. 
And I have to send him a check for that later this week. <laughs> That's no, the truth, though. I'm kidding. I have to ask a question since you do come from a, a, a psychological background. Quickly switching topic off of Diana Brown. <laughs> <laughs> you have this great wealth of knowledge about how the human mind works. So do you learn a lot about the individual psyche by how they approach their work? Uh, of course. I learn about them from the first that? moment I, I meet them. You know, one of the things I do think it's important, whether I'm directing or I'm counseling people, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And I know certain people need more praise, less praise, are smart enough to take a lot of input. Others can be overwhelmed by enough of it. Their hot buttons, what is their hot button? Is their hot button fame? Is their hot button creative, creative advancement? Is their hot button being loved? You know, absolutely, each person is very, very different. Dan? Do you use your insight into individuals? Not that you have the same psychology background, but as a director. Um, well, as, it's more as, as a playwright, I think, as well. Ah. In that I know that, again, going back to Dentata, that I had a lot of women approach me afterwards that couldn't believe that a man wrote the play. But I've also worked with women for most of my career in authority positions and all over the place and worked for women. And so I think if you understand people, then you can direct them and you can write them and you can get out of your own headspace to a certain extent. Right on. Now, obviously, I'm going to uh, discuss the fact that you are a career coach. Do you have any career coaching tips for actors? What are we doing wrong out there, the average individual pursuing a career? I just got an email from Molly Benson, who's one of these good actors mm -hmm. who's trying to make a living doing it. And she's doing what she needs to do, which is you can't avoid the marketing, even right. if you're an actor. Right. You must recognize if you are going to try to make a living doing this, you must do everything possible to become a businessman or a businesswoman. You've got to, as, as she has done, whenever she's in a play, she creates a great big email list of everybody under the sun she knows, including, of course, a lot of theater people. Theater people see all, you know, we all go to each other's plays. And she emails, you know, first performance sold out, reviews are in, you know, one after another after another. Marketing is critical. Unfortunately, the native, the, the actor personality is usually antithetical to marketing, and especially here in the Bay Area where anything for profit is seen as obscene and, and you know, the pigs and all that stuff. But the reality is to survive, uh, an actor must become a marketer. You, you mentioned uh, profit, a word uh, people don't always uh, become very familiar with in theater. Do you think uh, working in a for-profit environment or a non-profit environment creates the best art? Do you think there's any credence to that argument, I've well, had a few people weigh in on both sides of you that. You know, because I believe that we are not just like masturbating when we are, we're not, when we're procreating our art, it's not for just ourselves and our own pleasure. I find it really self-centered and narcissistic for, for to focus just on the art. And that's what, when things are nonprofit, it says by definition, the public doesn't want it, and therefore we have to subsidize it. So I am actually a fan of for-profit ventures and choosing plays that at least some segment of the public will want. Wow. All right. Now. Without subsidy. Without subsidy. Okay. Well, I do, I hear a lot of conversations on both sides of that. And sometimes I hear smaller not-for-profit theater companies saying, but the world needs our art. They need it. And but I, you know what? They don't need, if I they're not willing to pay for it. they need it. They don't. If they're not willing to pay for it, then they don't need it. They do not need, you know, our art is not so enlightening and inspiring and wonderful that if people are not willing to pay for it, that we should extort tax dollars from the, from the citizenry to pay for that which the public doesn't want to pay for. There you go. So here's a question then. Um, 
which political climate do you think the arts thrive in more, a conservative one of course, or a, a liberal, liberal one? Because all of the, you know, there is no more, there is no entity in society other than maybe the San Francisco Chronicle that is more politically correct, that is monolithically uh, liberal and de- demeaning of white men and extolling of minority women and gays and everybody else than theater. So, mm-hmm. you know, that I think that is utterly unfair. And I think it also does turn off half of the, you know, of the populace in America. But if you ask where does theater thrive most, given the nature of the plays that are written in the last 30 years, of course it's a liberal climate. Although I think most comics prefer a conservative climate because there's more grist for their mill. So, <laughs> Marty, when you started this process of I'm going to direct a play, what, why? What was the impetus for, for Marty Nimco to leave the stage as an actor and start directing? Constantly. First of all, I'm a control freak. I, like, I think I... I <laughs> I, I really do. I feel I need to, you know, I have this big ego. I do think I'm really smart and I'm really driven. And therefore, being a team, play, being part of the team frustrates the hell out of me. When I'm an actor and I got to listen to other dumb actors or, or direct, dumb directors giving me notes and telling people, I'm like furious. I can't deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> Period. Does, does not play well with others. No, I do not. I'm a, you know... As a leader, I'm benevolent. I think my actors like me. My crew really likes me. It's all, you know, but I need to be in charge, period. Well, you know yourself, and I think that's pretty important. Now, you did, speaking of acting, though, you had an opportunity to act opposite your wife. How was that? Excellent. Yeah? Well, the same woman I chose to be my wife is the same person I'd want to do other things with. She's very smart. She's got a great work ethic. She's got a, she's a natural talent. Elizabeth Franz, the first play that my wife did was uh, she had never, also, never, no, no acting classes, none of this crap, none of this paying money to the stupid <laughs> schools. She, I, frankly, I just coached her, just without any background. I just, I feel like I can, I, this is, I, I can't help it, it's true. I have this big ego, I think I can do anything. And so I coached her in being an actress for about three weeks in preparation for an audition for Brighton Beach Memoirs. And then when she got cast in the lead after that, um, I then said, okay, now you need a little bit of coaching from a master. And I took her, I found out who played the role, that same role on Broadway and who won a Tony Award for it, Elizabeth Franz. Um, and uh, she agreed to meet with my wife. And, uh, and after a three-hour uh, re- coaching session, she said, Bob, uh, you have the gift. So she's a great actress. By, you know, without training, she's just great. And she's very smart and hardworking in addition. And so I love playing opposite her. We have a very similar temperament. We're, you know, we, we're very task-oriented. We are not high-maintenance. And we just do the job really well. And we're very open with our emotions. Neither of us are constrained people. So we can easily portray the very fullest range of emotions on the stage together. That's incredible. Just share that with your partner. Well, Marty, if people want to see your show, where do they go? Give us the URL. We are we really about 90% sold out already, which is really cool. Ooh, maybe you'll extend? Uh, I'm hoping. That would be, that would be great. Um, but it is, um, it is at the Chanticleers Theater, which is in Castro Valley. Castro Valley is just south of Oakland. And um, best way to get tickets, well, let me tell you, again, play the same time next year. Uh, kind of a very innovative, but uh, we've gotten stand- three standing ovations now out of five performances. People are loving it. We sold out 90-plus percent of the houses. So if you'd like to come, we are, um, we are running through at this point, unless they extend, until August 4th, Fridays and Saturday nights at 8, Sundays at 6, Four reservations. You don't have to pay in advance, which is really great. <clears throat> so call, at least get a slot reserved. You call 510-C-LIVE, S-E-E-L-I-V-E, 
or there's a crappy uh, interface on the uh, on their website for <laughs> reserving tickets at uh, Chanticleers, which is also a weird spelling. Chanticleers.org, C H A N T I C L E E R S dot org. Right on. If they want to find you, Marty, where do they go? Go, go to my website. I, give, I really have at this stage in my life. I give away as much as I can. <clears throat> 500 of my articles about career, about men's issues, um, about education, um, and a little bit about theater. And also all my radio shows, my NPR radio shows, are all archived free. Yes, tell them the name of your radio show. It's Work With Marty Nemco, Everything About Your Career. And all that stuff's free at martynemco.com, which is spelled M-A-R-T-Y, N like Nancy, E-M like Mary, K-O dot com. Thanks for listening, and check out all our shows at radiostarnetwork.com. This has been a Cassandra's Call production.